This is Macro Horizons, episode 100, Who Would Have Thought, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 21st. If Macro Horizons can make it to 100 episodes, surely 10 years can make it to 100 basis points. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, what was the most interesting part about the price action in the Treasury market wasn't what we did see, but rather what we didn't. There was a great deal of focus around the FOMC meeting and the potential for the committee to extend the weighted average maturity of QE purchases. In the event the Fed actually decided not to follow through with a WAM extension, and intuitively one would have thought that the price action would be to back out some of the bull flattening that had occurred prior to the event with a classic round of relief selling which would re-steepen the curve. All else being equal, we would have expected that the absence of a WAM extension should have brought 10-year yields back to that 98.4 basis point support level, if not all the way to 1%. What we ultimately saw was a somewhat benign response, a sideways grind in rates. There was the offsetting influence of a weaker-than-expected retail sales print, as well as the steady rise of unemployment claims. So it largely came down to weaker economic data offsetting any bearish potential from the Fed. There was also an aspect of what the Fed did change, which was they confirmed that QE at $80 billion a month in the Treasury market will continue for the foreseeable future. And they introduced it into the statement in a way that it combines it with the already existing forward guidance. Now, we know from a sequencing perspective that the Fed will stop expanding the balance sheet before it increases rates. However, neither are likely to occur in 2021. So we'd argue this also provided a range-confirming bid for the Treasury market because it did reinforce the notion that the Fed will be actively involved in buying bonds for the foreseeable future. Also adding to the what didn't happen category, we didn't see a reversal in the equity market which one might have anticipated given the disappointment. Now, to be fair, there were decidedly mixed forecasts for whether or not the Fed did change the composition of its bond buying program. Moreover, the general understanding is that while the Fed decided not to use this particular tool in December, it is the next logical step. So if the economic outlook continues to deteriorate as the winter of COVID worsens, it's reasonable to anticipate that during the first quarter, a WAM extension will come back on the table as a very real option for Powell. 
We are entering the last two trading weeks of the year, and it's typically a period that has been associated with limited liquidity, which often drives outsized price action in response to relatively benign or uninspired events. So with that in context, the holiday shortened week ahead could prove to be a bit more volatile than the range trading theme that appears to be in place would lead one to believe. In that context, we'll be watching that 98.4% resistance in 10-year rates with an eye for a potential break to 1% or beyond. The shape of the yield curve has managed to be a bit more eventful, pushing back towards some of the pandemic steeps, and this is also consistent with the broader reflationary narrative, and steepening, while it is a crowded trade without question, continues to be the path of least resistance through the end of the fourth quarter and well into the first quarter of 2021. So it was a big week in the treasury market. We had a Fed meeting where there were some pretty big takeaways. Yeah, I would say that the biggest takeaway is the fact that we didn't get the WAM extension. There was a lot of buildup to whether or not the Fed was actually going to deliver a shift in their bond purchases. The fact that they didn't is difficult to ignore, although it does appear that the market ignored it to a large extent. Obviously, the decision itself garnered a lot of market attention, but really the most fascinating aspect of it for me was that sure, in the knee-jerk, we saw the bear steepening that would follow from the decision to hold off on the WAM extension. But really, as Powell's press conference began, the most meaningful takeaway was just how resilient this trading range is. Ten-year yields once again moved back to that 90 basis point level. So now that the last major scheduled event of the year is behind us, at least to me, it seems the next two weeks are probably going to be an extension of this sideways grind with a slight bearish tilt for vaccine's sake, if nothing else. Well, we also have stimulus to worry about. The on-again, off-again progress toward a $900 billion fresh round of fiscal stimulus from Washington is difficult to fully discount, although it's not a foregone conclusion that Washington is actually able to deliver on another round of stimulus before the end of the year. Expectations generally are that something will be in the offing, if not in 2020, then in early 2021. And I'll take the other side of the argument for stability over the course of the next couple of weeks, simply because it is traditionally a low liquidity environment where sharp price action does occur. And while cooler heads might prevail at the beginning of the year, we could see a test of that 1% level in tens, or frankly, we could even see a meaningful bull flattening on disappointment with stimulus and or any new hurdles on the way toward mass vaccination. And progress on the fiscal deal has been one of the main reasons cited why we've seen yet another week with record high equity prices. And tying this back to the WAM extension decision, the fact that stocks were able to hold a bid even though the committee decided to hold off on the next accommodative step has to be a welcome development for monetary policymakers, given the feedback loop between equity volatility and tightening financial conditions. Now, there is an argument to be made that just because the committee didn't change the bond buying program this week doesn't mean it won't happen at the January or March meeting. So from that perspective, the Fed still stands ready and able to do more if needed. Should the economic situation relating to the second wave of COVID-19 deteriorate, or we see another sharp sell-off in risk assets, which in turn tightens financial conditions? Let us not completely dismiss what the Fed actually did deliver, and they did deliver outcome-based forward guidance for QE. 
Now, there had been a debate about whether or not QE would be in place throughout all of 2021. From my perspective, at least, the Fed's condition to combine QE purchases at $80 billion a month or higher in treasuries into the statement in the way that they did really cements the notion that the Fed's going to be buying bonds all year in 2021. And it really isn't until 2022 or potentially later that the Fed would ponder tapering QE in the current environment. Recall all the troubles that the Fed had with its prior attempts to reduce the amount of QE it was introducing into the system. The oft-noted tapered tantrum, as it were. And so the fact that it's safe to say that the Fed is going to be an active participant in the Treasury market for at least the next 12 months really highlights one of our core calls for 2021, which is the fact that while, yes, we broadly expect Treasury yields to remain in a range, any meaningful sell-off beyond 110, 115 into that 125 area in 10-year space is going to be a critical test of dip buying willingness with the backdrop of a central bank that continues to add $80 billion in treasuries a month to their balance sheet. And on the flip side of that, we are still progressing through the pandemic and the economic recovery is continuing, maybe taking a step back given the latest wave of COVID, but this dynamic will conversely offer a floor on longer dated yields and operate as a meaningful hurdle to any material drop in rates in the 10, 20, 30 year sector. Yeah, we had a fascinating conversation earlier this week with a client who was trying to figure out the best way to scale into a short volatility position in this present environment. And my initial take was that while admittedly vol is relatively low further out the curve, there's still room for it to decline exactly for the reason that you point out, Ben, and that is that the Fed will be in the market will effectively be a cap for longer dated maturities. All of that said, there will be moments where we see a spike in volatility, and I expect that the best time to actively sell vol will be in the early parts of the year. So I'd be targeting the first quarter because that's when the vaccination process will start to reach critical mass and we'll start to see an emergence from the winter of COVID. And adding backing to that idea is what's going to be some pretty substantial base effects in March and April of 2021, especially around inflation. The plunge that we saw in the early days of the pandemic in March and April of 2020 will mechanically boost the figures that we get at the end of the first quarter in 2021. Now, sure, at the time, this nuance will probably make the rounds, but it could lead to some outsized noise in some of the top tier economic data, which in turn could lead to some volatility, not only in rates, but equities as well. And this also fits well with the realities of 2021 being a year that will be much more about inflation expectations than the type of inflation that the Fed would actually respond to. Because the Fed isn't going to respond to base effects that result from a global pandemic. The Fed will be focused on the anchor of inflation expectations, to be sure. Then that's what will make a focus on break-even so important in the beginning of the year. As we've noted, that 200 basis points Point level for 10-year break-evens will represent an important inflection point, and I suspect 2021 will be characterized with this benchmark of inflation expectations trading above the 200 level for a reasonable amount of time. And looking a little bit at the other side of this argument, how troubling is it that we've started to see a pretty substantial increase in initial jobless claims, particularly during the NFP survey week? We'll get those numbers on January 8th, but a meaningful setback in the labor market recovery could meaningfully delay the return to economic normal, even if societal normal may be a bit closer at hand given the vaccine rollout. 
looking at the price action in the week just past, the market doesn't seem to be very worried about the increase in jobless claims, nor the implication for the December non-farm payrolls report. I think it's safe to assume that that will become topical during the first week of January, even if the market seems to be content to set the issue aside for the time being and focus on the steady grind sideways into the holidays. Ben, you made the observation earlier about the 90 to 92 basis point level in 10-year rates being something of a dynamic equilibrium for the time being. This is meaningful from a technical perspective as well, because we're seeing a very significant volume bulge form in that area, which suggests not only a degree of comfort on the part of market participants with 10-year yield so close to 1%, but also it serves as the potential for a staging ground for the next big move. Now, it's not inevitable that that move is going to be bearish, even though that happens to be the collective bias of the market at the moment. We could also see a significant flight to quality bid put downward pressure on rates and serve to even further confirm this range trading thesis. A lot of our conversation thus far has centered on the new year, Q1, even the first week of January. But taking a bit more near-term view over the next two weeks, an important caveat that you touched on earlier, Ian, is the fact that we've reached the point in the calendar when there could be some outsized volatility, not necessarily as a reflection of investor sentiment, but simply due to the fact that liquidity will start to thin out as the holidays approach. I would add the fact that the work-from-home revolution may change this dynamic somewhat, but with just seven trading days left in the year, this is going to be important context in a evaluating any fluctuations in prices this week and next week. We've been talking a fair amount about year-end, and we haven't mentioned any potential year-end stress in the funding market. And I think that that's pretty telling. Recall in 2019, there was some clear defined stress in the funding market that led to a reasonable amount of concern on the part of market participants. Now, it was a reserve issue, not a credit issue for the banking system, so it didn't have the broader implications of what we saw the last time such an event occurred, which was during the last financial crisis. Fast forward to the end of December, there's so much liquidity in place, and the perception is that the Fed will be more than willing to step up as we did see with the dollar swap lines being extended. What wasn't extended, however, was the joint effort with the Treasury Department for the liquidity facilities in the muni and corporate bond market. So if anything, as a place to watch for any year-end dislocations, I would suspect that munis and corporates at least warrant a nod for this year's turn. So Ben, this is episode 100. That's an impressive accomplishment, don't you think? And we didn't even need to sing the road trip song. You mean Frosty the Snowman? Yes, Ian, Frosty the Snowman. He had a very shiny nose. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will be faced with a holiday-shortened week, and a week that has historically been characterized by the potential, at least, for sharp price action, even if it ultimately doesn't prove sustainable. The three-and-a-half-day trading week is not without supply. There is the 20-year auction on Monday, where we have $24 billion in the sector, all else being equal one would expect that that would put some upward pressure on rates further out the curve, consistent with the broader themes that are in place. We also see the existing homes data for the month of November. The consensus is calling for a 2.2% monthly decline, and we suspect that this will add to the broader discourse about the 
impressive run that we have seen in the housing sector as of late. The question has come up whether or not we expect what is currently playing out in the domestic real estate market to risk a bubble akin to what we saw in 2008 and 2009. The composition of home buying and the overall health of household balance sheets are much different than we saw during the run-up to the housing crisis. So a little less concerned on that front. Moreover, bank lending standards are definitively tighter, and the Fed does have a very strong commitment to keeping mortgage rates down. When we think about the policy objectives of lower rates contributing to economic growth, the most direct route for Fed policy to impact on the household level is through mortgage borrowing costs and the wealth effect associated with that. So we struggle to envision a situation where the Fed would step away from that market or risk any upset, particularly at this point in the recovery cycle. There is an ongoing and active debate about the shape of the recovery, whether it's V-shaped, K-shaped, W-shaped. We'll get more context for that as 2021 unfolds, but our stance still remains that it will be a version of combining a W-shaped and a K-shaped recovery. There will be definitive winners and losers in 2021, but the path back to 2019 levels will certainly not be a straight line. As uninspired of a strategic call as it might be, we do expect the Treasury market to follow the headlines coming out of Washington, D.C., associated with the prospects for a stimulus package by the end of the year. And while we're not assuming that it's a foregone conclusion that a deal is actually achieved, we do expect that there's still upside for yields as well as risk assets as the debate flows into the holidays. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And for the few listeners who have managed to make it through all 100 episodes, may we suggest anything else, please. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular 
particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.